0: Welcome back to What Happens Next, the podcast that examines some of the biggest challenges facing our world and asks the experts what will happen if we don't change and what can we do to create a better future. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. Keep listening to find out what happens next.
1: So one of the things that we've noticed um, and that colleagues and I have been working on is the fact that Australia really has a third world economy, even though we have
0: a first world lifestyle. So I think we need to meet people where they are and listen to their concerns and have them be involved in defining the pathways forward.
2: Australia, sky is the limit uh, in terms of where, you, where we want to position ourselves in critical mineral space. support exporting our resources but where possible we should be value adding here rather than seeing the value add somewhere else and the jobs created somewhere else.
0: weren't already toying with the idea of making your next vehicle an electric one, the skyrocketing cost of petrol lately has many of us considering their merits while staring glumly at the fuel pump. While we're fantasising, let's imagine that your new electric car only has to be charged once a week, no matter how fast you drive it. Not only that, your impressive imaginary car battery can be charged hundreds of times without failing, was completely clean to produce and was made right here in Australia. No, it's not the petrol fumes going to your head. Earlier this year, Monash University researchers successfully created just such a battery, one that could be the holy grail of green energy. One of the most vital components of these batteries and most batteries used to store renewable energy is lithium a critical mineral which, luckily for us, is so plentiful here in Australia that we supply nearly 60% of the world's reserve. Great, you're probably thinking, where's my new car? Well, it's not quite that easy. This week on What Happens Next, we're kickstarting a new series on critical minerals. As we transition to a decarbonised future, away from oil and coal, our technology will run on ores such as lithium, cobalt and rare earth minerals. How will this cause global politics to shift? Can mining and sustainability go hand in hand? And how can we ensure a just transition for all? Keep listening to find out what happens next. Hello, my name's Susan Park. I'm a
1: professor of global governance at the University of Sydney, focusing specifically on global governance in the transition to renewable energy.
0: Susan, what a great name! Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and with another Susan.
0: (laughs) Susan, what, what do we mean by the term renewable energy transition?
1: So it's a big question. Uh, the The renewable part of it is transitioning to energy that is not fossil fuel based, and that can include a whole range of different types of technologies everywhere, from the big and well-known ones from from solar energy and and wind technology through to biofuels and types of uh, processes for capturing carbon. Um, so it's a whole range of different technologies, but we know the big ones uh, as, as wind and solar. Obviously, needs to be backed by um, battery storage, lithium ion battery storage, because at this point, these technologies don't have that capacity. So there's a big investment in trying to find ways to store wind when the wind's not blowing and um, solar energy when the sun's not shining. The transition part is the bigger component of that question which is how we can actually move from an entire society and entire economies that are based on fossil fuels. So this is everything that we do is dependent on fossil fuels, how our buildings are structured, um, what materials they're built from, um, how we heat our, our buildings, how we move around our cities in terms of transport. So Everything that is produced industrially is built on being um, driven by fossil fuel energy. So that transition is a massive headache, I guess you could say at this point, because uh, one of the biggest problems in in that transition is how you actually get your head around moving whole societies and economies away from this fossil fuel dependence.
0: I want to ask you to clarify some some terms for the the average fool, which is me. What are critical minerals and what are rare earth minerals and are they the same thing or are they different?
1: That's a great question. So critical minerals at this point is what national governments have identified as necessary for the energy transition. So this includes everything from cobalt, copper, rare earth minerals, um, tin, tungsten, tantalum, all of these that we need to be able to produce solar PV, so solar panels, uh, and wind turbines in order for this transition to occur. So Australia, the Australian government has a list of critical minerals. The United States government has their list. The European Union has their list. They're pretty similar, but they obviously depend on which technologies these governments have determined that they're going to push forward with as a means to transition their, their, their states and their economies. Rare earth minerals are one of the critical minerals that are necessary. And when I say one of, they are in fact comprised of multiple different minerals that have been lumped under this heading of rare earth minerals. Surprisingly enough, rare earth minerals are not that rare.
0: Okay, first misnomer.
1: (laughs) Um, But the reason why they're called that is because they're kind of spread out all over the place and that makes collecting them and using them and
0: processing them actually quite a challenge. Dr Mohan Yalashetty is an Associate Professor in the Department of Civil Engineering at Monash University. He's recognised as one of the world's leading experts in critical minerals. So what do we use critical minerals for?
2: Oh, critical minerals, uh, you talk of uh, when when you look around in this particular room itself, you know, you've got computer screens, LCD screens, and you've got, uh, you know, the LED bulbs and any technology that you talk of, they underpin by availability of some of these materials, even renewable energies, uh, the defense technologies, satellite imageries, you know, all of them require very high precision elements like these critical minerals.
0: Okay, so that. where do we find them?
2: Oh, well, we find them in a range of sources. Like um, there are a lot of uh, different ore bodies that uh, host them. Uh, but if you look at, uh, for example, my generation of minerals, you know, we, we all are familiar with aluminium, mm. iron ore, copper, lead, zinc. So they, they have been the mainstream metals. And most critical minerals always... Uh, were you know companions or hitchhikers we mm. call them and uh, that's where you know they are part of it but we never were interested in them and then we discarded them into tailing stamps and so on now we are chasing them back again in, and uh, yeah so you can find them in every single ore deposit again uh, depending on which type of ore body that you're looking at so they could be found um in a variety of different uh, ore bodies.
0: So people originally were just chucking them out and now you're going back to that rubbish pile going, where was that tungsten again? Where, where's the lithium?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. For example, when we did uh, copper mining, cobalt is always associated with copper ore bodies. But, you know, their use has not been as much it is today in the past, maybe, you know, two, two decades ago. And all of that ended up in a lot of these tailings ponds. And they are sitting uh, just for no reason there. When, when you talk of critical minerals, we must understand they possess certain specific characteristic features. For example, they are magnetic; they have high luminescence properties, or high thermal conductivity properties, uh, metallurgical properties. You know they are very unique in uh, in the way that they behave, especially when you are alloying with uh, different other metals. Let's take uh, for example gallium one element which is uh, sourced as a byproduct of aluminum mining, bauxite mining, it's used in LED bulbs. It is used in, you know, all these um, uh, high-tech machines, uh, sorry, uh, high-tech motherboards and so on and so forth. So, yes, we require them because uh, they have to give best performance when they are in operation. So for that reason, we need to have them... um, uh, and not to mention uh, the important property of uh, railroads mainly the magnetic property, because if you look at wind turbines, let's take um, the, that example, um, there are number of ways in which you, the turbine can, you know, sort of uh, move. One is through proper, you know, gear system, but that only performs 40% efficiency. But whereas, you know, when you have these permanent magnets, which are, neodymium praseodymium you know terbium and neodymium uh, neodym, uh, so all these these uh, new generation of materials are required to you know manufacture some of these permanent magnets which which give you very high performance uh, and then uh, yeah all of them are very very crucial in in those uh, modern technologies.
0: Do we have access to many of these things in Australia? You know, can we mine them here or do we need to get them from overseas?
2: Yeah, Australia, we are very blessed to have majority of these critical minerals in our ore bodies because our Australia is a huge mining country and uh, mining always contributed close to 10% to our GDP, which meant we mined pretty much every mineral ore uh, that you could think of. And that means, you know, we also have a lot of these companion metals of interest now, which are in huge demand uh, that world needs. So, yes, we are fortunate that we are able to um, produce them and supply to the rest of the world.
0: Do you think we are going to see Australia and maybe even the world move away from coal, oil and start? Focusing on the sort of critical minerals that are used more in renewable sources—is that the direction we seem to be moving?
2: Yes. Uh, uh, recently, we had a roundtable meeting with the uh, uh, Indian uh, Minister for Energy and New re- and Renewable Energy Sources. Uh, the ambitious plan that uh, India has is you know, they want to add close to 2.5 gigawatt of energy, which is non-fossil fuel dependent, per month. Mm. So, which is going to be a huge ask uh, and that requires a lot of these new generation materials like cobalt, lithium, nickel, uh, graphene, you know, all of aluminium, copper, all of them are, uh, they underpin most of these technologies. That means, you know, the world needs them and we have them um, uh, in, in our backyard.
0: Here's Susan Park
1: again. Um, we do have rare earth minerals in Australia. Um, there are some in the United States. You can find them in all over the places. But the question is how can you actually produce them at capacity um, to be able to use them effectively in this transition? So in actual fact, um, China has a significant number, in fact, dominates the rare earth minerals, um, and that's creating um, a, a sort of drive by other states, particularly the US, to identify how they can um Secure enough rare earth minerals and be able to process them for their own transition. We can't build uh, a future that's made in America if we ourselves are dependent on China for the materials that power the products of today and tomorrow.
0: All right, I want to ask you a um, political science question now, which is as you were talking about the where we can find the resources and who seems to have a lot. I couldn't help but wonder if we are going to see a a real shift in global powers uh, as we move away from things like oil and into the uh, importance and influence of having access to things like lithium and other rare materials. You know, a lot of the like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf has achieved what it has and had the influence that it has because of their access to oil and the fact that they can sell it. And I wonder if we'll start to see uh, countries like that maybe have less and less global influence and even greater global influence for the countries that now have the things that everybody wants. And what will that mean? What will that mean in terms of shifting geopolitics?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and we are seeing that dynamic playing out so it's playing out at two levels one is the actual extraction of the the raw mineral and australia is well placed we have a lot of lithium you know we are in a good good situation you would say in terms of this transition to renewable energy but the extraction process is only part of the part of the global supply chain and so in actual fact we don't manufacture much here right? So we're not actually taking that much of an advantage of, say, lithium deposits by being able to transition that into lithium-ion batteries. So in actual fact, we are possibly going to see some of the same things that we saw with fossil fuels and other types of natural resources where you fall into a sort of resource dependence type of trap, which is where you start to be seen as only the extraction state and not actually be able to produce anything. And there's that big concern in places like Chile that it's really just the extraction of lithium and they're not going to be able to actually leap ahead in terms of advanced manufacturing or being able to dominate um, the re- renewable energy industry. And so you can start to see consolidation in some industries. Um, so China absolutely dominates rare earth minerals uh, 97% of, of rare earth minerals wow. um, China is also now dominating solar panels mm. so this is the production of solar panels is coming from China where is Australia selling its lithium we're selling it to China mm. so, so the geopolitical dynamics are heating up in terms of who is going to dominate the actual technology itself in areas like wind we're seeing a consolidation of the entire wind turbine industry to just seven companies and so you're starting to think about you know the benefits or the potential for different types of technology to provide say you know people talk about energy democracy the fact that anyone can build a wind turbine anyone can jump into the solar panel market well that's actually starting starting to tighten up really really fast so through mergers and acquisitions and this is not not just political but political economic in terms of what governments are promoting in terms of backing specific industries dependent on these critical minerals
0: Susan, are we heading in the direction of uh, the Gulf War three? But this time, instead of fighting over oil, we could be actually having wars or conflict over rare earth materials. Look, you can't
1: rule it out. I think one of the issues that we have to bear in mind is that Certain states are now poised to automatically see the other as with suspicion. So that is the United States and China. Now, China is obviously well placed to transition to renewable energy. The United States is playing catch up in a very, very fast manner, uh, particularly under the Biden administration. So, uh, look, we've seen trade wars between the two. Uh, we've seen uh, China be willing to withhold uh, the export of reno- uh, rare earth minerals to Japan. So it is willing to use those types of levers should it feel the need to. Uh, combined with flashpoints, you know, we're seeing a sort of rolling sort of discontent playing out uh, in relation to Ukraine, in relation to foodstuffs. So, um, and, of course, um, the, the global pandemic, that that's not gone away. So there's still some lingering discontent. Uh, There, So you can't rule out war, but you could hope that states are willing to be able to cooperate enough and to be able to diversify their own energy systems and sources enough that that's not necessary.
0: For a country so rich in critical minerals, Australia is much, much further behind than other countries when it comes to transitioning to them. The reasons are complex and perhaps partially rooted in anxiety. It seems like something that society seems quite anxious about, anxious about they want to do the right thing, but also a fear about well, what does it mean and, and how do we shift away in a way that means we don't lose anything?
1: Yeah, there's, there's again, really good points and in, in two parts of it. We do have a great deal of anxiety around it. We've known about the the, the climate crisis for literally decades uh going back to the 1970s in fact so this is not something new but obviously it is now impacting on our daily lives and and the anxiety is around what we should be doing as individuals when in fact we know that this is a structural problem that there needs to be a whole of society change in how we live our lives and i don't at this point think that it really is a trade-off in terms of quality of life. We can in fact transition to renewable energy and you know, still charge up our phones and our iPads and have that connectivity that we've come to know and expect.
0: Dr Paris Hadfield is a research fellow at the Monash Sustainable Development Institute studying transitions to a decarbonised future, something we'll explore further next week. She's seen some of the anxiety Susan just mentioned in Australia's many mining towns. Do you think there's a big fear in the community that some groups might be left behind or excluded in, in this process? Certainly, and I think um, that comes up a lot when we're talking about coal transitions, mm. certainly. Um, we still see the federal government not willing to say that we won't invest in new coal, um, coal-fired power plants. Um, And that's obviously problematic for the environment and climate change. um, But that's a real concern for people. So I think we need to meet people where they are and listen to their concerns and have them be involved in defining the pathways forward. Here's Susan again.
1: And Australia, um, again, going back to the lithium, we have the lithium, but we don't do manufacturing. Um, so that that you know um, the last federal election um, the, the now government um, suggested that this is something we needed to move into well that's something that other governments are well on top of and have been planning for decades so we're really behind the able in the sense of trying to then create our own manufacturing base to be able to take advantage of this transition it's not to say it can't be done um, but obviously there's a there's a real a lot of catch-up to be done the, the biggest concern is the fact that again we've lost advantage uh, in terms of the the knowledge and the technology that were coming from our scientists that then went to China because the Australian government just wasn't interested in solar panels enough to invest and that's really borne fruit for, for countries like China even though the technology was produced in this country um, so in terms of the the workforces um Again, like in, in Australia, coal—you know—we have we have a bifurcated coal industry. We've got coal for for domestic electricity consumption, and that's transitioning. But we also have a huge coal market for external uh, for export, and that for steelmaking, for example, and that continues to boom despite mm-hmm. the climate emergency.
0: Cast your mind fifty years into the future. In Australia, imagine we don't get on top of this issue the way you're talking about. We don't start really trying to invest in the industry of rare earth uh, materials and and being able to build things with with it. We just keep sending it off offshore. What do things look like for Australia and and perhaps the planet? Great
1: question. Um, So one of the things that we've noticed um, and that colleagues and I have been working on is the fact that Australia really has a third world economy. Even though we have a first-world lifestyle, so we just dig stuff up. We are a lot less diverse than we were three decades ago. I don't see that actually changing. Um, during the global pandemic, for example, the last uh, last federal government uh, decided not to actually extend any support for its third or fourth largest market, which was higher education. Uh, so we're you know we're protecting industries that are really not. Um, not benefiting the average Australian. So, for example, when I say that, yes, of course we all benefited from our mining boom, but that money wasn't reinvested and it wasn't used to diversify our economy and as a result of which we are going to be further and further and further behind. Um, How and where we invest in, in, in Australian money, it's not going into research and development. So where is it going?
0: Is it too late to turn the ship around? Well... <laughs> I would like to think we could do that.
1: The biggest concern is potentially the fact that the uh, a lot of investment does need to come from the federal government. A lot of that investment needs to go into research and development, needs to go into manufacturing, needs to go into the the shift that is necessary. And it is not clear to me that the Australian government has the appetite for the risk that is necessary to get us the payoff that we would like in order for the Australian people um, to be best placed to take advantage of the renewable energy sort of race, if you like. Meanwhile, we continue to be a major polluter, which of course has huge ramifications globally.
0: Susan, what a horrifying interview. I've absolutely loved it. Thank you for joining us today.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: Australia's poised to be a global leader in the critical minerals race if we can just make it happen. And we must because the future of the earth is at stake. Next week, we'll discuss how we can do it and how we can ensure that no one is left behind along the way. Thank you for joining us for part one of our look at critical minerals. Thank you as well to all our guests on today's episode, Dr. Paris Hadfield, Dr. Mohan Yalashetti and Professor Susan Park. For more information about their work, visit our show notes.